It's in the book of 1 John, chapter 5, 13 through 15. That's found on page 1023 of the Blue Bible in front of you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, the large numbers are the chapter markers. The smaller numbers are the verse markers. So follow along with me as I read 1 John 5, starting at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Can you know that you're right with God? Can you know that you're in God's good graces? To put it bluntly, can you know that you're going to heaven and not to hell when you die? In some ways, those are the questions that launched the Protestant Reformation. So according to Roman Catholic teaching, a Christian can have hope that they're saved, but he or she can never have assurance And that makes sense from within that system. According to Rome, you can forfeit your salvation by the commission of a mortal sin. So mortal sins, according to the Roman Catholic Church's catechism, are those that are serious. They are entered into with full awareness and undertaken with deliberate intent. And so if you commit a mortal sin, and let me just go ahead and spoil it for you, you have, well, then you have to go through the sacrament of confession and reconciliation, or else you'll be cut off from God forever. If you were to die in a state of mortal sin, even if you've been a faithful Christian otherwise your entire life, then you will go to hell for all eternity. The Catholic idea of purgatory is only for minor sins. There is no remedy for a mortal sin if you die with one unaddressed on your record. With that in mind, you can see why that system can't give you assurance. You don't really know that you are saved until you get across the finish line, until you make it to your death in a state of grace and forgiveness. There's always the possibility that you might slip up, that you might mess up and commit some mortal sin. Or even worse, there's the possibility that you might commit one of those sins and not really recognize it. And so you won't confess it to a priest. You won't receive absolution and you will wind up in hell. This is the possibility that tormented Martin Luther. If you know anything about him, he was an obsessive person. And so he could never really feel like he had plumbed deep enough into the depths of his soul. He could never be sure that he had confessed everything and done anything necessary to make sure that he was forgiven. So one day at age 21 in 1505, Luther was returning to university on horseback when he was stuck in a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt struck very nearby. He was, as you might imagine, terrified. But he wasn't really scared of the the potential physical pain that might come from being struck by lightning. He wasn't even afraid of dying. What terrified him in that thunderstorm was that he could very well have died without having time to get his spiritual affairs in order. 
and he could very well wind up in hell for all eternity. Luther cried out to St. Anne, supposedly Mary's mother. He promised to enter into a monastery if his life was spared. He did survive that storm. He became a monk, but he still never found any comfort in the Roman system. It wasn't until one day when he was reading the New Testament letter of St. Paul to the Romans that he finally understood the message of the Bible and how it is that we can have eternal life and how it is that we can know that we have eternal life. At the risk of oversimplifying, Luther hoped to reform the Roman church, but he was unsuccessful. The Protestant church grew up as a response. But you know, it's not just Roman Catholicism that teaches that we can't know whether or not we're right with God. Really, any system of belief that says that our good deeds, our works of righteousness and love, our obedience, our performance, any system that says we contribute some worthiness is really unable to ever give us certainty regarding salvation. Because we know there's always the possibility that we're going to mess it up. So, for example, Mormon teaching doesn't offer an individual any sense of confidence. Only the knowledge that in Joseph Smith's words, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step. In the words of former LDS President Spencer Kimball, each command we obey sends us up another rung of the ladder until we are at perfected manhood and are toward godhood. But every law disobeyed is a sliding toward the bottom. Islam teaches that no one can know for sure whether they'll be welcomed into paradise on the day of judgment, even significantly the prophet Muhammad. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll be fine. But you'll never know in this life. Even in faith systems that don't have salvation per se, there is this idea that your eternal state, your, your state beyond this life depends on you. So in Buddhism, enlightenment is something that you achieve by letting go of attachment and desire. In Hinduism, the individual's destiny is determined somewhat by the law of karma, the sort of cosmic balance of your deeds. But in every and all cases, you can never know if for certain whether you're doing well enough. You can never be sure what eternity has in store for you. It was just this idea that drove Luther to near madness. Later on in his life, he looked back and he summarized the problem this way. He said, even if I lived and worked to eternity, my conscience would never be assured and certain how much it ought to do in order to satisfy God. For whatever work might be accomplished, there would always remain an anxious doubt whether it pleased God or whether he required something more, as the experience of all self-justifiers proves, and as I myself learned to my bitter cost through so many years. So, friend, how about you? On what basis do you believe you can be right with God? Does it depend on something in you? something you've done, or something that you've managed not to do? If so, have you ever stopped to wonder whether you can ever really know that you've done enough? What happens if you find out that you haven't done enough? What if you find out you've done too much? Well, in our passage for this morning from John's first letter, 
we see that followers of Christ can know that they have eternal life. And that's a radical, radical thing to say. And so let's turn to 1 John chapter 5 together. And with the time that we have, I'd like to look at two things in this brief passage. First, the believer's certainty. And then second, the believer's confidence. So the believer's certainty, that'll be verse 13. And then the believer's confidence in verses 14 and 15. So first, the believer's certainty. You see there in verse 13, John speaks to the issue. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is telling us here why he is writing these things. That is to say, why he has written this letter to this church. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel account that John wrote of Jesus' life, if you remember, towards the end of that gospel, he also told his readers why it was that he was writing. So he says in John chapter 20, starting in verse 30, he says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us that he wrote his gospel for the person who hadn't yet heard about Jesus, so that they might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, that person might have life in his name. So now, years later, he's writing this letter to a group of people for whom his gospel had accomplished its purpose. Right? These were people who, who had heard about Jesus and put their trust in him. They believed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ sent to save them. And despite opposition that had come up from false teachers that had recently left the church, they, these believers were clinging closely to that confession. And so John's purpose in this letter was to give them confidence. He wants them to have assurance. He wants them to know with certainty. He wants them to understand that they weren't wrong. They didn't misunderstand. God hadn't changed Whatever these false teachers who had been plaguing them, whatever those false teachers might have said to them, they believed in the Son of God. There in verse 13, John says that they believe in the name of the Son of God. Here, as in many places in the Bible, the name stands in for the whole person. Right? To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in him and all that he's done. Right? That's the part that's not in question. Right? There, there's no doubt in John's mind that his readers believe in Jesus, that they trust that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But because that's the case, because they believe in the name of Jesus, the apostle tells them that they can know for certain their standing before God. He says there in verse 13 that they can know that they have eternal life. And we talked about the idea of eternal life some last week. And we said last week that the Holy Spirit testifies to God's gift of eternal life through his Son. And remember that eternal life is not just living forever, though it is that. Eternal life means that even if your physical life comes to an end, which it does for all of us, your soul will go to be with God. 
And there will one day be a great resurrection of the dead where you will receive a glorified body in which you will live forever. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 11. We read there in John 11, starting in verse 25. Jesus said to her, that's one of the sisters of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying, even if you die, even if your body goes to be in the grave, there is still life. Right? For the one who believes in Jesus, they will never experience a real permanent death. But eternal life's not just a promise about what happens after we die. It's a promise about a specific kind of life. Right? We're, we're not talking about eternal life as a Mormon might conceive of it, becoming the god of your own planet. And we're not talking about it in terms of your, your individual consciousness melting into the universe. No, when the Bible talks about eternal life, the life that Jesus brings, it's nothing less than life in the presence of God. It's nothing less than being with God. It's nothing less than living in a world made perfect, where there's no sin, no sorrow, no sickness. This is why Jesus can promise the thief on the cross next to him that today you will be with me in paradise. The thief will be in paradise because he will be with Jesus. And to be with Jesus is to have every longing met. It's to have every desire fulfilled. It's to have every purpose of your life brought to its fruition. And that's why... The Bible understands that eternal life starts now. Eternal life, the gift of God, is is something that's broken into our present existence. So when you trust in Christ, when you believe in the name of the Son of God, you are brought into God's family, right? We've thought about that earlier in 1 John. You are brought into a relationship with your Creator. You are indwelt by His Spirit. And you're given a new taste. You're given an appetite for godliness, You're given a hatred for things that are impure and opposed to God. And it's that life, it's that spiritual principle in your heart, it's that love for God, that enjoyment of his favor and blessing and kindness, it's that life that begins now that continues on forever. The only difference is that your future experience of it will be perfect. It will be undiluted by sin and weakness. It's that life that John wants his readers to know that they have. He wants you, Christian, to have assurance and certainty that that eternal life is yours now. Again, you can understand why this is such an important issue to the church uh, to which John is writing. These false teachers had come in with their own program of belief They said, if you want to really know God, uh, you have to follow us. We're the ones with the higher knowledge. And so John wants to reassure these faithful Christians. He wants them to know, "You you were right to reject them. You have the real thing. You have eternal life because you believe in the name of the Son of God. But the question is how? How can they how can they know with certainty? Well, in many ways, that's what the whole letter of 1 John has been about. Right, throughout this book, we've seen that John is giving us evidence. 
ways that we can tell that we really truly have this eternal life in us. But he's giving us three lines of evidence, three things we can look for in our lives so that we can have confidence that we know God, right? that we are his children, that we have eternal life. Right? If you've been here for this whole sermon series, hopefully these are familiar to you. There's the test of doctrine or, or true confession, true belief. In chapter 2, starting in verse 22, we read this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? It seems that that's what these false teachers were doing. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. What this church heard from the beginning is the gospel message that was proclaimed to them by the apostles. The message of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Despite the false teacher's best attempts, this church held fast to the truth. It continued to abide, to remain in the truth. And this truth abided in them. So John says, you have eternal life. The second test, the second sort of strain of evidence is obedience. So again in chapter 2, starting in verse 28, John writes this. He says, now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This idea of being born of him, being born of God, is closely connected to the idea of obedience. That's really what much of chapter 3 is about. There is a family resemblance. When you are a child of God, when you're born of God, there is a family resemblance that grows up in you. You increasingly reject the works of the evil one. You increasingly reject the things that characterize his children, his family. Pride, anger, lust, envy, greed. And you more and more begin to look like Jesus, the Son of God. You see righteousness and truthfulness and compassion and forgiveness growing in your life. And you know you've been born of God. You know that you have eternal life. And finally, there's the third test, the test of love. Specifically, love for your brothers and sisters in the church family. So we read in chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, not too difficult to understand. If God is love, and if he loves his children, then if you are his child, you will love his children too. So with those three tests, if you put those three things together, 
the true confession that Jesus is the Son of God, a life characterized by growing obedience rather than a life characterized by a passion for sin and a genuine love for others in the church, those three things are nothing less than God's eternal life manifesting itself in you right now. It is evidence that you have eternal life now. It is the, the springs of living water that Jesus promised welling up in your soul. Right? If you see those three things in your life, they are a foretaste of future glory. That's what eternity is. Delighting in God's gift of his son, perfected holiness, incredible love. Right? If you see those three things in your life, you are, you are experiencing a foretaste of the eternal life that God has in store for you. Right? With the Lord Jesus, perfected in love, freed from sin. John has confidence that the members of the church that he's writing to will pass these three tests. He's writing not to scold them. Right? Not to berate them into getting their act together. And not to make them feel badly for their failures. He's writing to encourage them. He expects that they will be able to look at their lives, see evidence of God's grace, his eternal life at work, and have great assurance and confidence. Now you might be thinking to yourself, hold on. I thought you said the Bible wasn't like all these other religious systems. They say you can't have assurance because your salvation is in some ways dependent on you and your performance. And so you can never be sure. But now John seems to be saying the very same thing, right? He says, I need to look inside myself. And if and only if I see true doctrine, true obedience and love, only then can I have confidence that I have eternal life. How is that good news? How does that not leave us just like Martin Luther, always wondering, have I done enough? Am I good enough? But don't misunderstand what John's saying here. He is not saying that eternal life, that salvation, is something you earn or you merit. He is not saying that if you do a good enough job, God will reward you with eternal life. And if you don't do a good enough job, you are on the outside looking in. No, remember in John's gospel, we are told that this eternal life that John wants us to know that we have, it is a gift of God. It is the gift of the Father's love to the world. Remember John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal life that God gives to his people comes to us not in response to our works, not in response to our merit and our good deeds. It comes only as a free gift. God gave his only son to secure, to, to win eternal life for us. Jesus did that by living a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, by giving up his life on the cross, bearing on the cross everything that we deserve for our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the punishment that we deserve. 
On the cross, Jesus took on himself everything that stands between us and eternal life. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He he triumphed over the powers of, of sin and hell. And so the eternal life that he gives is never something that we earn or merit. It's something that he's earned and that he gives as a free gift to anyone who will trust in him. God doesn't give eternal life to those who earn it. He gives the Lord Jesus to everyone who trusts in him. And so when John gives us these three tests, doctrine, obedience, love, he is not giving you three things you can do to improve your odds of making it through judgment day well. No, he's giving us three indications that this free gift of eternal life is at work in us and has taken up residence in us. When you continue on believing in the Son of God, despite living in a world that finds that idea silly or unsophisticated or even bigoted, when you continue hating your sin and fighting against it, when you continue loving others in the church and serving them in practical ways, John is saying you can know only the Spirit of God produces that kind of fruit. So do we need to be on guard against presumption, against saying that you're a Christian when in reality you're a fake and a phony? Sure, yes. But that's not what John's talking about here. Instead, he wants those who have received the Son of God by faith to have confidence that they have eternal life. And brothers and sisters, this is really important because this will shape your life. This will give shape to your relationship with your heavenly Father. If you're not sure that you have eternal life through Christ, you are not going to enjoy your Christian life very much because you'll either have to try really hard not to think about it or you're going to wind up driven crazy like Luther. Right? Think about a child who's not convinced that he belongs in his family. Think about a child who's not convinced that his parents love him. Think about how anxious that child would be, hoping that he's done enough to earn his parents' love. That child is not going to have a lot of happiness and security at home. Friends, that's what other religions will get you. But here we see that that's not what God wants for his children. He didn't send his son to die for you so that you could live in doubt and fear and anxiety about your eternal state. And so God gives his children assurance so that they can relate to him in light of that certainty. He doesn't want you walking around insecure and worried. So that's the believer's certainty. And that brings us then to our second point, the the believer's confidence. John has an application to all of this there in verses 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So John, having told us in verse 13 that we know that we have eternal life, then turns in verse 14 to give us an immediate application of that principle. The the sense of peace and security and welcome that we enjoy as people who are convinced that we have eternal life means that we have confidence, he says in verse 14, toward him. 
So that phrase that's translated toward him, that is literally what it says in the original Greek. But I think maybe John's meaning is a bit obscured. He's not saying we have confidence sort of in God's direction, right, is what, maybe what we think. But the sense of that phrase is that we're confident as we come towards him, as we approach him, as we enter into his presence. Confidence as we come to God. Again, brothers and sisters, this is one of the great gifts of the gospel. When God made the world, he created human beings to live in his presence. Again, that's what made paradise so great. He created Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden, and he was present with them. Everything was beautiful. Everything was good. But when we rebelled against him, we found ourselves disqualified from his holy presence. A holy God is not safe for sinners, and so we have to remain at a distance. We can have no confidence toward him as we go into his presence. But in his great love, God came to us. He came toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now, cleansed and covered by the blood of God's Son, we can have confidence toward him. We can go into his presence, not as condemned rebels, but we come into his presence as beloved sons and daughters. And so now we have confidence. We don't have to wonder when we go to our Heavenly Father, whether or not he's lovingly disposed towards us. We don't have to wonder whether we'll be welcomed when we come. That question was settled at the cross of Christ. And so I feel like amongst sincere Christians, there is this misguided sense that the really humble thing to do, that the really respectful thing to do in light of your sin is to stay at a bit of a distance from God. Right? You know your sin, you know your weakness, you know your lack of faith. And so it seems like the least you could do would be to feel badly about it, to feel ashamed, to show God respect and, and not dare to come into his presence. Right? You'll show him that you're sorry by not presuming to have confidence as you, as you go to him. But Christian, realize that's actually not what God wants from you. That's not what pleases him. Right again, if you're a parent, just think about how you'd feel if, if one of your children didn't believe that you loved them and that you wanted them to come to you with the things that they need. That would be awful. Right? It, would, it would prevent anything resembling a relationship. Christian, what God wants for you is for you to have confidence, for you to have boldness, for you to come into his presence, head up, smile on your face, Right? Verses 14 and 15 make clear that this, this uh, confidence that John envisions plays out for us in the way that we pray. So he says we have confidence toward God coming into his presence. And it's clear from verses in 14 and 15 that what he's talking about is prayer. It's coming into God's presence in prayer. He talks about the things that we asked for, the requests that we make. He talks about being heard. Right? Clearly the context here is prayer. As Christians, when we pray to our God, we understand that we are, in a very real way, coming into his presence. There in verse 14, our gospel wrought confidence is such that if, he says, we ask anything of him in prayer, God hears us. That idea of being heard by God, it's not that God literally hears the sound of our voices, right? We already know that. 
It's not the sense that, oh, God's aware now of the thing we prayed for. We already knew that. No, this hearing that John talks about, uh, when he talks in verse 14 about uh, he will hear us, it has the sense of, of giving heed to, a sense of being uh, heard, understood, welcomed, paid attention to. God hears us when we pray to him. He's glad that we asked for the things we asked for. He's listening and he cares. That's what John's saying here in verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything, it says there, he hears us. He's favorably disposed towards our requests. There in verse 15, John draws it out a bit bit further for us. He says that if we know God hears us when we pray, and we do, if we know God hears us when we pray, then he says, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Right? We're, we're certain uh, that we will receive the things we ask for. And so it seems that what we have in verses 13 to 15 in our passage for this morning is a, a meditation on our assurance of salvation. And the application that John makes is to the way that we pray. The apostle wants us to know that we have eternal life in verse 13 so that we will pray like people who know that they're being heard by God, verse 14, and people who are certain that they're going to receive what they ask for in verse 15. Now to me, again, one massive question arises from what John says here. One problem comes to mind immediately, and that is that nothing could be more obvious from my experience than the fact that prayer does not normally result in the immediate granting of the thing that I ask for. Right? John, John seems to make it you know, clear that we already have the thing we asked for, right? the end of verse 15. Right? We know we have the requests we've asked of him. I, it feels like I've asked God for things and haven't, haven't gotten it. So, so how do we understand that? It's not too hard to think of times when you've prayed for something and not received exactly what you asked for. Right, Lord, please give me that job. Lord, please heal this illness. Lord, please repair this relationship. Lord, please help me stop this sinful behavior. But you don't get the job. The illness lingers. The relationship flounders. The sin besets. And so it can be tempting for us to think that what John says here actually isn't true. That we're not heard that we don't have that for which we've asked the Father. And that, in turn, might shake our confidence in God's love for us. But I think we need to wrestle with what John says here in verse 14. He clarifies the nature of this promise. It's not a carte blanche, that God will immediately give you everything you want and ask for. And of course, if you stop for a second to think about it, that has to be true. If God were nothing more than a cosmic ATM, nothing more than a bank from which I can withdraw immediately whatever I want, well, that means that you and I would essentially be running the universe. And honestly, that would be terrifying. Right? I might ask for a job. I might ask for a certain result in a certain situation, but I actually can't know what's best for me and best for the rest of the world. If we all just automatically received everything we asked for immediately, things would come unhinged pretty quickly. And so John clarifies the promise for us. Our prayers will be answered, he says there in verse 14. Our, the answers to those prayers come to us if we ask anything, he says in verse 14, according to his will. 
That is to say, prayer is a way that we come into God's presence, bringing our needs, bringing our requests to our loving Heavenly Father. And it's also a way that we bow our wills to His. Now that might sound like a cop-out. Right? If you ask God to do what he already plans on doing, he will do it. But I think it actually shows us something important about prayer. And it might put a, a finger on a reason that some of us struggle to pray faithfully. Because what we see is that prayer is a way that we ask God, not simply to give us a bunch of stuff that we want, but it's a way that we ask God to do his good and holy will on our behalf and for our benefit. And we, are, we can really only do this joyfully if we are convinced of his love and if we're certain of his wisdom. Right? If you know that your heavenly father loves you and if you know that he knows more than you do and has more power than you do and is far wiser than you are, well then, of course, you don't want to give him a list of things that he has to do. Right? You, you don't want to demand certain outcomes and results Right? That would be a Twilight Zone episode waiting to happen. Now, if you know that your Heavenly Father is perfectly wise, utterly powerful, and completely loving towards you, well, you want him to do whatever he wants to do, right? Because that's what's going to be best. And so, of course, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray in just this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And look, these weren't idle words for the Lord Jesus. On the night before his crucifixion, as he stared into the horror of the cross, as he stared into the wrath that he was to endure for our salvation, he prayed. He prayed not most basically for freedom from pain and suffering, but he prayed that his heavenly father would do his will. So we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, speaking of Jesus. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup meaning this upcoming crucifixion. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. A few verses later. Matthew 26, 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. A couple of verses later, Matthew tells us simply he prayed the same way a third time. And so what we see is that prayer is an opportunity for us to come before our heavenly father with the confidence of a beloved child. It is an opportunity for us to delight in his wisdom and in his goodness so that we want his will to be done even more than we want our own to be done. And that's meant to be a tremendous encouragement, a tremendous relief, a source of freedom to us as we pray. Right? We, we don't have to get everything right in prayer. We don't have to get the grocery list exactly correct or else our lives come unhinged. Right? God knows what we need. God has a perfect, loving, holy will. And so we're free as his children to come and to, to ask for what we need as we understand it. So as a church family, we've been asking the Lord pr to provide for all we need in order to build a new building. And we're not sure if that's his will or not. 
We have a sense that it is. We have a hope that it is. And so we ask for something that frankly seems unlikely. But we ask with boldness and joy, knowing that God certainly doesn't lack love. He doesn't lack resources. And we also ask without being crushed if it doesn't come to pass or if it doesn't happen in just the way we asked. Either God does what we ask for and we can delight in his goodness or we find out that he has a better, more loving plan. It's all good news. Right? As a parent, you pray for your child. You pray for their health, their development, for their spiritual life and growth. And look, at any given moment, things might not look like they're going the way you want them to go. But you can have confidence in your Heavenly Father. You can trust His holy will, that He loves you, that He knows best, that the love that you feel for your child is actually love that God put in your heart for them. And so you can pray without panic and without fear. You can trust Him. If you pray for a spouse or a job, a direction in life, healing for a disease, growth in holiness, you can be sure of your, your Heavenly Father's goodwill. You can be sure that He is kindly disposed towards you, that He will only ever act in love towards you. So when you pray any prayer, when you ask according to His will, as John says there in verse 14, He hears us and He always answers. In fact, John says there at the end of verse 15 that we know we have the requests that we've asked of him. Right? It is such a certainty that while the, our experience of God's answer to our prayer might be delayed, John speaks of it there as if we know it's already happened. Right? I might not see it right now. I might not see it in this time, but it's already taken care of. We know we've received what we've asked for. Now, brothers and sisters, there is such good news for us in this passage. Can you see that all of this is of God? This is all born out of his love for you. This is all his doing. He sent his son so that you might have eternal life. He's given you what you need in order to know that you have eternal life. And he welcomes you into his presence. He invites you to come and ask anything of him. And he promises to answer it according to his perfect will. This is one of the great blessings of the gospel, that we can pray to our Heavenly Father with confidence and joy. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote this. He said, the pardoned soul may go to God with boldness in prayer. Guilt clips the wings of prayer so that it cannot fly to the throne of grace. But forgiveness breeds confidence. He who has this pardon may look his prince in the face with comfort. And so, brothers and sisters, let's, let's exercise that great privilege now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer with great confidence, and let's come into his presence at his table. Let's pray.